This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams Massachusetts. Oh, you are from Massachusetts, aren't you? I am from Massachusetts, yes. And I'm from sunny Southern California. I'm Craig Williams. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And I write uh, Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and also my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. Well, Craig, uh, as every lawyer knows, the the costs of discovery have been escalating, particularly with the... uh, increasing uh, uh, frequency of e-discovery. Last month, uh, President Bush signed Senate Bill 2450 into law, which will establish, which has established the new federal rule of evidence 502, uh, and is meant uh, in part to, to tackle these rising costs. So the law creates a new, a new rule of evidence limiting the attorney-client privilege and work product waivers. Well, the new law, which is effective immediately, is used to facilitate discovery and reduce discovery costs. Under that rule, the parties can create the waiver rules that govern the proceeding, and those rules will be binding on third parties and state proceedings as well. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about this new evidence rule 502 and talk more broadly about uh, uh, some of the issues, uh, current issues in e-discovery and trends in litigation. Well, on today's show, we've got attorney Robert D. Owen, who's a partner at Fulbright and Jaworski, who's head of the New York Office's litigation group and founding co-head of the firm's e-discovery and information management practice group. Mr. Owen has practiced commercial law in New York since 1973, with experience in hundreds of cases before federal and state courts and before arbitration panels throughout the United States. He's a fourth-generation trial lawyer and has served as faculty member seven times at the National Institute of Trial Advocacy's NIDA's well-regarded national session in Boulder, Colorado. He's a member of the Sedona Conference's working group, number one, managing information and records in the electronic age. And he recently co-authored a piece on a new 502 evidence rule with Fulbright and Jaworski's attorney, Kevin Yanowski, entitled, New Federal Evidence Rule 502 is Now in Effect. What Will It Really Change? Welcome to the show, Attorney Robert Owen. Uh, good morning. I'm live from New York, and uh, please call me Bob. Well, Bob, uh, let's start. We've got a lot of what we want to talk about today, but let's start with Rule 502. And uh, uh, give us your take on this. I mean, start with the, the big picture of, of what this rule is meant to accomplish and what it does. Uh, good. And as I begin, let me say that I speak for myself and not for the firm of Fulbright and Jaworski. Um, rule 502 was the Rules Committee's effort to uh, cut back on the escalating costs of pre-production privilege review. If you go to the materials that were uh, created by the uh, Federal Rules Advisory Committee and uh, then in turn by the Judicial Conference, you will see recurring references to the amount of costs that litigants these days are incurring to review data sets page by page. Um, The intent of the rule is to uh, create procedures that allow for the reduction of those costs. 
by way of background, I can add that in Fulbright and Jaworski's fourth annual litigation trend survey, which was released just about a year ago, um, we asked our respondents, how much of your litigation budgets are consumed by pre-production privilege review? And a quarter of the respondents replied that between 20 and 50% of their litigation budgets uh, were consumed by pre-production privilege review. Uh, for the benefit of everybody listening, let me um, just briefly define what pre-production privilege review is. Uh, for those that may be somewhat unfamiliar with it, it is the process whereby um, these data sets, which in the old days we just called stacks of documents, but which are now megabytes or gigabytes or even in some large cases terabytes of information, in order to avoid the inadvertent waiver of the attorney-client privilege, um, young lawyers usually, uh, most frequently contract lawyers working by the hour sitting in cubicles, uh, review these data sets page by page in order to uh, find and remove from the production set any documents that might be privileged. So that's what we mean by pre-production privilege review and our survey findings from last year uh, confirmed what we believed, which was that an enormous amount of uh, our company's uh, uh, corporations and businesses and even not-for-profit entities' resources are being devoted to this uh, uh, this exercise. And, and when those documents inadvertently made it through this screening process uh, before this new rule came along, what, what happened? Well, it depended on where you were practicing, or rather where your case was pending. The First Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, uh, the Federal Circuit were the most strict circuits. And in those circuits, the production of a single privilege document could, in some cases, effect a broad subject matter waiver as to all attorney-client privilege materials related to the subject matter of the inadvertently produced document. So you can see why outside law firms were terrified at the possibility of inadvertent production. And, of course, in-house uh, lawyers working in legal departments were similarly terrified. So the, um, the concept of economy when it came to doing these pre-production privilege reviews was, was really not on the agenda. Um, the last thing you want is for your adversaries to know the advice that the lawyers are giving to their clients or the confidential facts that the clients are imparting to their lawyers in order to obtain legal advice. And that's the essence of what is protected by the privilege. To some degree, the statute allows the individuals that are involved in the litigation to set the, um, their own waiver rules. What kind of waiver rules are fairly typical that, that um, are agreed upon and set, I mean, like clawback agreements and the like? Um, you're talking about the new federal evidence rule 502, and the the central purpose of 502 as it relates to this issue of cost and pre-production privilege review is to allow the parties to enter into agreements uh, between themselves, um, and the most typical agreement is called a clawback agreement. Uh, it does what the name suggests. It allows a party who has inadvertently produced a privileged document to claw it back from the receiving party. Um, and then usually at that point, the, the court or the, the tribunal 
is asked to rule on whether there was in fact a waiver or not, depending on the circumstances and their their due diligence and the promptness of their notice and so forth are factors that uh, that come into bear on on whether the privilege was waived. But the clawback agreement allows the producing party to get it back, um, and the receiving party is supposed to destroy all copies. And um, there's no legal requirement that they erase it from their memory, and that's that's part of the problem I'll talk about later. Another common agreement is the quick peak agreement, whereby a producing party might turn over all of its electronically stored information, or at least that ESI that's within scope to the other side. The other side then itself undertakes the burden of reviewing that data set and says, I'd like you to produce documents 2, 10, 22, and 85. And then the producing party looks at those selected documents and removes those that it contends are privileged. I have to say the latter type of agreement, although it is called out in the, the notes to the new rule, uh, is not very widely used in my experience. When uh, when lawyers have the these opportunities to have enter into these two agreements, for lawyers that aren't familiar with electronic discovery, where can they find uh, quick peek agreements and, and clawback agreements, samples that they can look at to enter into? You know, that's a good question. There are a number of places on the Internet. There are a lot of vendors in this space, um, and I would suggest that they go to Google and enter quick peek agreement, and chances are six out of the first ten hits will will be drafts that are reasonably usable. I, I I don't know of a standard source, and I don't believe it's the case that the Judicial Conference or the Federal Rules Advisory Committee uh, uh, created suggested forms, but they should be relatively easily obtainable on the Internet. Would you call that an oversight? No, I wouldn't think so. It, these are not... There's nothing magic about these agreements. and There's no magic words you have to invoke. Uh, it is important, I should add, for those that are unfamiliar with the rule, that it's not sufficient just to enter into the agreement, plaintiff and defendant. It's necessary in order to invoke the protections of the rule that the agreement be then incorporated in an order of the federal court. Only then are the protections of the federal rule of evidence 502 um, obtainable and um both in the federal court, in other federal actions, and in state actions. So the the purpose of the, the new rule and the reason why it had to be enacted as legislation by the Congress and signed by the president rather than being adopted in accordance with the Rules Enabling Act is that it, it needed to be a law, it needed to invoke the powers of the Interstate Commerce Clause, and it needed to circumvent the limitations in the Rules Enabling Act. Bob, and as we mentioned at the outset of this program, you recently co-authored an article that's uh, available on your firm's website about this rule. And in that article, you you say that uh, the extent, well, I'm going to quote, you say, the extent to which this rule will really affect broad changes in current practices remains to be seen. Why do you say that? Um, I will tell you that this is something that I came to relatively recently, and somewhat to my embarrassment, I have been on record uh, in the previous year saying that this should help to reduce costs substantially. But once the rule became enacted, and once I put myself in the place of advising a client on how how much it can rely on this rule to uh, eliminate the page-by-page uh, review 
or how much it can uh, it just uh, sort of relax itself. I came to the view that I really don't think this this rule will achieve much of a reduction in the current cost, um, and I think that for several reasons. First, as I alluded to before, once you produce something confidential to the other side, they have seen it, they will take it into account, they will use it to frame further in, uh, discovery requests and uh, deposition questions. And so the damage has been done, and there's nothing in this rule that will undo that damage um, to to a litigant. So that's a very serious concern. How is it possible to even theoretically undo that kind of damage? I mean, you know, it's You'd have to almost dis- like telling a jury not to consider a fact once it came out. Yes, exactly. The jury will disregard the fact that the defendant just leapt up on the table and confessed to the crime. It's not going to happen. And so there is no way short of some magical device like they had in Men in Black to erase people's memories. That's a, that's a severe problem, and that by itself is probably enough uh, to keep most uh, litigants in the current mode of review, reviewing data sets page by page. Um, there are no limitations. The, the, obviously, 502 can't have effect in the any EU proceedings or UK proceedings or other foreign tribunals. It does not expressly apply to arbitrations, and so that's an open question as to how far it can can go to uh, afford the protections in arbitrations. Um, so I, I view it as, as we said in the client alert, I view it as kind of uh, hurricane insurance, if you will. It, it's there if the worst happens, and, and I think litigants would be imprudent not to enter into clawback agreements with their adversaries now, but it's not something that's going to cause in-house counsel or their outside advisors to say, gee, now that we have Rule 502 and a clawback agreement, um, I don't think we have to review these data sets. I just, you know, once I thought about it more thoroughly, I did not see that happening. Isn't another shortcoming that this rule uh, doesn't apply in the state in state court proceedings? Uh, it, no, it, no, it does. If if you do get your clawback agreement, and it's the genius of the rule, frankly, and I give the the drafters credit for this, um, it it will apply in state court proceedings if if a previous order has been entered in the federal proceeding where the document was produced. But you're correct that um, if the inadvertent production is made in a state court proceeding, you gain no benefits from this rule, really. There, there had been attempts, uh, or there had been the argument made that the rule should be uh, somehow crafted more broadly to uh, 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 apply in more general terms to state court proceedings, had there not? Well, the rule tries to do that, and, and uh, it succeeds to a limited degree in, a, in, in some nuanced ways, but um, it, it isn't as broadly applicable as we might want. And uh, as I say in the alert, I, I regardless, I just even even in the federal proceedings where it has its core application, I don't think it'll change a lot. And, you know, it does anticipate that there's another court proceeding, a hearing of some type, to determine whether or not there's been a waiver of privilege, which really doesn't decrease litigation costs. It just kind of gives the court some guidelines to consider. Well, that's a good point. Um, 
26B5 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure is the uh, the new rule adopted in December of 06 that uh, provides the procedures for litigating whether a waiver has occurred following an inadvertent production. And factors that the court has to consider are the, you know, the, the reasonableness of the document review before the inadvertent production, the promptness with which the producing party notified the receiving party, and so forth. So, it doesn't eliminate waiver. Um, it just uh, uh, it, it it helps to make any agreements more broadly applicable. You can still waive the privilege if you enter into a clawback agreement and uh, you're sloppy in your in your procedures. Uh, I don't think the clawback agreement's necessarily going to help you because usually the courts will reserve to themselves the right to determine that ultimate question. Was there, in fact, a legal waiver? Isn't it really more of a technology issue? I mean, my understanding is that there are now, that a lot of the litigation costs arose because data sets had to be converted into something that can be reviewed, but there's now software out there that allows the data sets to be reviewed in their native format. Um, there are, and those are in, in the last year or two have become more robust and, and more um, uh, easy to use. Uh, it, but but whether you're reviewing in native or whether you're reviewing in TIFF or PDF or you know printed paper, um, it still requires a lot of human eyes and time. Uh, if you are very at Fulbright, our very very best document reviewers, uh, you know they can touch sometimes a review rate of a hundred documents an hour. Uh, let's just take that as you know. Uh, the best case. Okay, 100 documents an hour, 40 hour a week, that's 4,000 documents. 50 weeks a year, that's 200,000 documents in a year. You can see that just to review a million documents would take one person five years. And with the data sets that we now deal with, it's not hard at all to get to a million documents. So uh, the volume of data is is driving these changes and driving this cost explosion, um, and it's it's taking us into utterly uncharted territory, and certainly it's it's worlds away from the universe that existed in litigation in 1938 when the rules were first adopted, providing for full pretrial disclosure. It's almost like we need a whole new type of procedure and a whole new set of rules. Well, you know, we surveyed on that in, in this year's litigation trend survey, and those results were reduced, uh, released just yesterday, in fact. So um, your questions are very timely. And again, they can be accessed by going to Fulbright.com forward slash litigation trends. <laughs> we asked, in light of the uh, increasing complexity of, of discovery and, and the cost of e-discovery, do you think that... Uh, the U.S. philosophy of full pretrial disclosure should be reconsidered. Um, and we ask that question in light of the fact that the U.S. is unique in the world. In the EU, in the U.K., in Canada, and elsewhere, the pretrial disclosure requirements are far, far less um, uh, encompassing. Uh, typically, in, in many jurisdictions uh, over in Europe, uh, all you do is you hand over your trial exhibits, and the other side gives you theirs. Uh, for good cause, you can get broader 
discovery, but they, they take a very dim view of our system. So it's not like um, it's impossible to resolve civil disputes without, uh, without full pretrial disclosure. A lot of countries do it. So we asked this question, and uh, we had 353 respondents this year. We always aim to get over 300 respondents uh, each year to make our data uh, as reliable as it can be. Two-thirds of this year's respondents, including 74% of firms in the midsize range, $100 million to a billion in revenue, uh, said, yeah, we do think that the philosophy of full pretrial disclosure might need a second look. Bob, I'd like to talk more about the litigation trend survey. We need to take a, a short break, so let's do that, and let's come back and, and hear more about uh, the survey that was released yesterday. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Visit WestLegalWorks.com to register for the 12th Annual Electronic Discovery and Records Retention Conference being held November 6th and 7th in Chicago. For more information, visit WestLegalWorks.com. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleaseTheCourt.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. Online video is one of the best ways to get the message out about your firm, and Legal Channels is where your firm should be. You can have your firm's video produced by TV professionals and seen on Law.com, Legal Talk Network, and YouTube. Find out more at Law.com or LegalTalkNetwork.com. Just click on Legal Channels. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are talking to Bob Owen, a partner in Fulbright and Jaworski, a head of that head of the New York office's litigation group, uh, founding uh, co-head of the firm's e-discovery and information management uh, practice group. Uh, and, and Bob, I believe you said you were also one of the one of the authors, or if not the author of the uh, annual litigation trends survey that was released yesterday by your firm. Uh, I'm not the author. I'm a participant in the team that works on it, and uh, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to do it every year because we get to ask questions that we're interested in knowing the answers to. So uh, I, I enjoy my participation in it. I, I'm wondering, given where we are uh, in uh, in the somewhat of an economic crisis in this country, uh, what did the survey uh Tell us about what we might expect in terms of uh, the pace of litigation over the next year or two. It's a good question. Um, our, our survey this year was conducted between May 22 and July 18th, so it did not capture um, the, the recent turmoil in the financial markets um, at all. However, at our panel yesterday um, at uh, Bloomberg headquarters here in New York, we had the heads of litigation of Shell, oil and ExxonMobil, as well as several of our partners. And 
Um, first, I'll tell you what the survey said, and then I'll say what the panel said. Uh, the survey revealed that uh, although litigation had dipped in the 12 months running up to early summer 2008, uh, our respondents saw the uptick of, of uh, uh, litigation on the horizon. We call it an inflection point in our press release this year. I think that's a perfect term because we probably hit a litigation bottom right around the time that we were doing the survey. And um, uh, our respondents saw it coming. Our panelists yesterday confirmed their view and, and uh, I think everyone's view that the uh, the turmoil, the bankruptcies, the acquisitions, uh, the change in status of Wall Street firms from investment bank to national or state chartered banks, um, the layoffs, the uh, the uh, collateral uh, collateralized swaps, you know the sorry the collateralized debt obligations and uh, and the swaps. There there is going to be uh, we all believe an explosion of litigation and depending on which candidate is elected in November, uh, the regulatory climate could change uh, radically as well. When you look at the uh, litigation trends and you look at the the uh, recent economic issues, what did your panel address last night? What were, what were they thinking? Well, they were thinking um, uh, that the, the, uh, the, our partner who heads the, the London office um, herself used to be Acting head of the predecessor to the Financial Services Authority, so she's well positioned, and she she sees, and and so does our uh, head of the FCPA practice, a former DOJ lawyer that that works out of our DC office. Uh, they both commented on how much more cross border cooperation there was among regulators. Um, both predicted um, a strong uptick in enforcement activity. Uh, there will certainly be, I think we all agree, indictments um, surrounding uh, these recent uh, financial collapses. Uh, the prosecutors will be looking for uh, people to prosecute, um, and that's the way our system works, and we can expect it to happen. And it seems that the survey found that some of the most uh, common areas of, of litigation are those that traditionally have been a labor and employment, uh, personal injury Contracts. Uh, contracts, business actions. Yes. Uh, will will the economy change that at all, or is that likely to remain the same for the coming year or two? You know, it was surprising in our first and second surveys uh, when we asked our respondents, what's your biggest litigation concern by subject matter? And practically every year, if not every year, labor and employment was the number one concern. And we kind of scratched our heads because most of those are not uh, big ticket items, um, but there are a lot of them, and uh, we think that is a source of concern. And then, increasingly, in recent years, there's been a, a strong surge in what's called wage and hour litigation um, in the states around the country, where class actions are brought to litigate uh, the payment or the non-payment for certain types of work, uh, off time clock working, and that sort of thing. So. You know, those will continue to be numerous. Contract actions is really going to be at the heart of a lot of the litigation that flows out of this recent uh, uh, collapse. Um, Personal injury, I think, will probably tick along, you know, as it has in the past. I don't see strong movement one way or the other, except in those states where uh, tort reform uh, bills 
uh, are, are taking hold, like in Texas. Well, when you think about labor labor force as a as a percentage of a, a business's budget, I mean, generally it's a, it's substan- substantial, uh, you know, three quarters or more uh, uh, of a business operating cost. So it's not surprising that that labor and employment issues would be significant, uh, even if any one of them is not necessarily a, a major challenge. Uh, cumulatively, they add up to uh, uh, a lot of exposure. I think that's exactly right. It's a numerosity issue. So just to go back to the issue of um, changing the litigation style from uh, U.S. style to a European to a more European style, what's your prediction on uh, the likelihood of that happening? And if you think it is going to happen, uh, how long it's going to take? Well, um, I think we're looking at a five or ten year horizon here. I don't think there will ever be a, a total abandonment of the full pretrial disclosure uh, uh, approach in the United States. There's an enormous uh, business built around it. George Stosha recently estimated that, you know, e-discovery costs the country $2.4 billion. That's not going to go away anytime soon. But what I like to suggest is that we could look at approaches to to limiting e-discovery. When I first started practicing here in New York City back in 1973, there was no limit on deposition length. There was really no limit on the number of depositions that you could take in an action. And so I I participated in depositions that went on for 15, 20, 25 days for one witness. Uh, now in the federal rules, there's a seven-hour per deponent time limit. Uh, in many jurisdictions, there's a 25-deposition limit. And, and guess what? Our disputes are still being resolved. I think a similar approach could be considered in connection with e-discovery. Um, parties or courts could could limit the number of email inboxes that have to be checked to some reasonable number. Some of our clients, they, you know, we represent global clients in the e-discovery realm, and and some of them have to uh, go pick the email inboxes of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred people. Um, so you might put a limit there. You might put, as Judge Grimm, a magistrate judge in the District of Maryland, and a, a wonderfully learned and, and thoughtful man in this area, he has suggested that an e-discovery budget be established at the beginning of each case with the help of the court, depending on the significance of the issues that are at stake, either the ad damnum or the, the value of the injunctive relief, if that's what's being sought. And the parties can spend their litigation, sorry, their e-discovery budget in any way they wish, but once they've spent it, it's over. They have to stop and go to trial. I think that's a very creative suggestion, and and, and maybe the change that I think is coming will take that direction. Well, on that note, we are uh, just about at the end of our time. Uh, We do like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners uh, how they can follow up with you if they'd like to do that. And also, uh, if you'd like to uh, remind our listeners again of that uh, URL for finding the litigation trends survey. Uh, And if there's any other closing thoughts you'd like to do before we wrap up the show, here's your chance. No, well, thank you very much. I've I've enjoyed it. I, I think we've covered the high points in the interview. Um, the URL for the litigation trends survey is www.fulbright.com forward slash litigation trends. If anybody wants to look me up and uh, contact me, go to www.fulbright.com forward slash r o w e n, and uh, there's more there than you'll ever want to know about me. Thanks so much for your uh, for inviting me to be on the show. Well, thanks very much, 
And that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And you can also find our programs in the podcast library on iTunes. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank Bob Owen for taking the time to be with us today. Very interesting. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back next week to discuss another great topic. See you then, Bob. See you then, Craig. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.